Welcome to Stock Stories, episode 119. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. My name is Alex and I am your stock storyteller and host for today. And I guess every time you tune in, that's me. So welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast and thank you so much for joining. This is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, make better investing decisions. And we do that by looking at case studies of real companies, real companies out there in the world. You can actually buy and sell their shares on the stock market today if you wanted to. And we learn by looking at real examples. And we also learn on the show by looking at mental models. What are the philosophical underpinnings of investing? Because decision-making is not just about real-world experience, although that's a major part of it. But what about the theory behind it? that can help us improve our results as well. So that's what we do here on this show. Again, my name is Alex, your host and stock storyteller. One of the major goals of the show is going through the entire S&P 500. I figure, what the heck, why not learn about every single business model that makes up the largest companies in America? And I have done also some international companies. I know some of you guys out there are from outside of the U.S., and I really appreciate your feedback as well and requests to bring some companies on the show that are also all over the world. So don't get me wrong. We're definitely not limiting ourselves to just the S&P 500. That just happens to be a major focus of the show. So thank you again for tuning in. If you tuned in last week, we talked about a large global company called Caterpillar. If you're not familiar with Caterpillar, go check that out in episode 118. It's a large industrial firm. They make dozers and you know, uh, earth-moving equipment of all kinds. And the company that we're going to talk about today is actually a competitor of Caterpillar, but they started out actually in a different sub-niche. So without further ado, let's get into it. Let's talk about Deer & Company. All right, so let's talk about Deer and Company. Ticker symbol DE. Deer and Company is a company that makes all sorts of agricultural and farm equipment primarily, but they also make a lot of equipment for the forestry industry. That's just a very short snippet of what they do. As I always like to do on this show, I like to look at what is the history, what is the context of the business we're studying, because if we understand the company's beginnings, we can better understand where they're at today and where they're likely to go in the future. So Deere and Company, well, it was founded by a man named, you guessed it, John Deere. John Deere was a blacksmith from Vermont in the early 1800s, and he didn't have very good financial luck over there in his early years, and he actually went bankrupt. 
So he decided to uproot and move across the country, traveled all the way to the Midwest, United States, and moved to Grand Detour, Illinois over in 1836, and he just wanted to start a new life. So he took his skills as a blacksmith to open up his own shop and started selling tools for the people in the town. He started making custom-made tools. And this included things like pitchforks and shovels, just basic necessities for the farmers that were in the area. And at the time, tools were made one by one. They weren't really productionized or manufactured in nearly the same way that they are today. And so someone would come in, they'd order a tool and he'd make the tool and then that would be it. But uh, another problem was also that they wouldn't make the tool until they ordered one so that it was inefficient for the customer. They couldn't see the product before they bought it. The customer would have to come in and then describe it or maybe draw it out and then deer would then make the product. So he thought, you know what? This doesn't really make a lot of sense for the people buying my things. They should be able to see what they're buying. So he created an inventory of products that he knew people already wanted. And this turned out to be really successful. So word spread about his shop and his sales increased. So at the time, farmers used wooden or steel plows in order to do their work over in the Midwest. And the problem with Midwestern soil, I found out, is that it's really sticky compared to other types of soil. So the wood or the steel plows that were being used to plow the land for crops, you would have to the you would have to clean them frequently. So imagine a farmer working along in a field and just constantly having to clean the soil off of their plow in order to do their work. So what John Deere did is that he created steel plows. He used a different material. And the good thing about these steel plows were that is that they were much smoother and required a lot less maintenance. So it just created less friction in the entire plowing process. So that ended up working out pretty well. Now, a few years later in 1848, he moved to Moline, Illinois, and he formed a business partnership with a man named Leonard Andrus, and they started productionizing their farm equipment and they grew and grew, but eventually Deere bought him out. There was a disagreement over product quality and Deere's partners believed that the customers would pretty much buy whatever products they put out. Like, Hey, what other options do they have? We're just, we're the only real game in town. We can kind of just speed this thing up and make a lot of money. And apparently Deere responded, look, they haven't got to take what we make and somebody else will beat us and we'll lose our trade. So Deere was really conscious that his competitive advantage was in product quality and on serving the customer effectively. So he created this factory and it produced hundreds of plows per month. Now, a decade later, the country was going through a recession and Deere ended up selling his business interest to his son, Charles Deere, in order to keep the business afloat. Now, Deere only really did this to avoid bankruptcy. He still stayed really involved in the business. So it was a father-son kind of thing. And he stayed involved and it became family-run. Now, over the years, the reputation for Deere's farm equipment continued to grow. And by 1869, Charles had launched a marketing plan and began building out a dealer network nationwide. So when you're selling locally, it's relatively... I shouldn't say easy, but easier than a nationwide type of operation. You've got a store or a factory and people come to you and you sell to the local population. 
But if you want to scale beyond that and you want to become a national business, you have to have a way for customers around the country or around the world to become familiar with your products. Remember in the Caterpillar episode, we talked about this dealer network that they have. Well, John Deere has the same thing and it started out in a similar way. So Charles Deere created this dealer network and that really helped the company grow. Now at the turn of the century in 1912, Charles ended up passing away and his son-in-law, William Butterworth, took over as president of the company. Now this is when the company expanded into their iconic segment of products, which are tractors. John Deere is still known for their tractors today. And this is when they first got into that business line. Now first they made their own tractors but then they realized that it wasn't really in their core competency. So they purchased a local business in Iowa called the Waterloo Gas and Engine Company in 1918. And let me pause here because I think there's a pretty good lesson for business. It's sometimes in order to expand your skill set, you don't need to waste time trying to figure out everything yourself. Go to someone who is established as an expert and then learn from and make use of their expertise. So that's exactly what they did. Deere's expertise at that time was making plows and other types of farm equipment. Now, tractors, that's kind of a tangential market. Farmers are going to be buying those types of products too. And frankly, in these times, there were really new inventions and there was a really high level of growth as an industry. So instead of trying to reinvent everything from the ground up, they decided, hey, we'll buy a company who's already doing this well, that already has a good reputation, and we will just combine forces. And that's what they did and ended up working out really well. So in 1927, a few years after that, Deere introduced its first combine and then subsequently released additional models. Now, I got to admit, I'm kind of a city guy, so I did not really know what a combine was. And I've seen them before but I, have, I had no idea what it was. So a combine harvester is a large machine that basically combines multiple basic procedures for harvesting crops, usually things like grains. And there's different processes involved in the actual collecting of the grain. Like once you go out in a field and you plant the seed, you water it, you let it get sunlight, and over time the, the crop grows, right? And then at a certain point, you have to harvest that grain in order to make food with it. So how do you do that? You don't just pluck it up out of the ground. There's a process called reaping where you cut the plants and you collect it. There's a process called threshing where you kind of loosen up the edible part of the grain from the chaff or the shell-like casing of the grain. And then there's something called winnowing, which is a separation of the grain from the straw itself. So there's all these different procedures just to collect a harvest. And prior to the invention of the combine harvester, farmers pretty much had to do this themselves. And it was really laborious. And in fact, this one invention was instrumental in reducing a significant amount of physical labor from the farming process. So that was pretty big deal. And Deere introduced their own version of the combine in order to supplement all of their other products. So that was really great for the company great for farmers, and great for America. Unfortunately, the Great Depression hit not long after that, and it was really hard times for Deere and company in the early 30s. Uh, but between 1930 and 1932, Deere's sales fell 86%. I mean, they barely survived. 
But one of the things they did to stay strong was they survived kind of due to their loyalty to their customers. They ended up extending payment terms to their customers and they ended up taking on over $12 million in farmers' notes, which are loans essentially. So they were kind to their customers and their customers stayed loyal. And because of this, they ended up recovering. And by 1937, the company produced over $100 million in annual sales. So they started really getting, gaining steam and growing. So throughout the next several decades, they expanded into a lot of different product categories, like industrial tractors and even equipment for forestry. And by the 60s, they expanded into the consumer market with things like garden tractors, mowers, and even had snowblowers. So that is something that I was familiar with as far as my exposure to Deere's products before researching them is I've seen John Deere tractors before. I've seen the mowers. Um, Golf courses use their equipment all the time to keep the green nice and fresh. So they make all sorts of products and they just moved into this consumer market as well. But they started purely from the industrial farmer side. Now in 1987, Times were hard, and the company actually celebrated its 150th anniversary, but they recorded a loss of $99 million. So you can see some some patterns with this business already through its history. You have times where things were really good, times where things are okay, and times where things just really suck, and the company is barely holding on. Now, in the 1990s, there was a period of return growth, and the company kept expanding not only in its product lines, but they started really moving internationally in the 90s. And they acquired a bunch of different businesses during this period. And that kind of leads us to just a few years ago in 2017, they acquired a company called the Wirtgen Group, which is an industry leader in road construction. So that's kind of their uh, push into another tangential market. So they had all these acquisitions. They've had periods of growth and decline throughout their history, but they're still here today. And it's an old business. They've been around for well over a century, coming up on two centuries in a few decades here, which is very impressive for any business. So even with all the cyclicality, Deer and Company is a company that's probably here to stay. We're always going to need food and we're always going to need some sort of farm to grow that food on and farmers have to collect it somehow. So Deer is really involved in building the technology behind the agriculture business and they're also involved now in things like road construction and forestry. So they have a big presence in those areas as well. Kind of similar to Caterpillar, but not quite as big as Caterpillar is. Caterpillar is more focused heavily on the construction side. Deer is more heavily focused on the agriculture side as far as a, a comparison to the company we looked at last week. All right, now let's talk about an overview of the business as it is today. What, are, what do things look like now? So now Deer and Company, they have over 70,000 employees worldwide, and about 30,000 of those employees are in North America. So that's to give you some sort of a feel for the global scale of their business and how it's split between U.S. and other countries, U.S. and Canada and other countries. So about 84% of their manufacturing and production employees are represented by a union, which I found kind of interesting. That could be something to watch out for. When you have a company that has a lot of union employees, that could be really good. It could also be really bad, depending on what the union demands from the company. And it can take a toll on the company's financials or, or shareholder value as well. 
so it just it's kind of a sticky issue this whole idea of unions but just keep that in mind that deer and company has a lot of employees that are in a union now they use a dealer network to sell their products all around the globe so about 2,000 locations to sell their products and these dealer networks these dealerships are independently owned and i found this interesting because it's kind of like a franchise model but instead of something like you know fast food industry like mcdonald's is a franchise business it's in the heavy equipment industry it's in the agricultural equipment industry so they have dealer networks just like caterpillar does now let's talk about the business units how do we organize the products that they sell so they have an agriculture and turf segments they have a construction and forestry segments and then they have financial services so agricultural and turf that's the bread and butter of the company it's where the company got its start they sell tractors they sell combines they sell utility vehicles golf course equipment etc all sorts of things related to grass and wheat and working with the land things working with the land to produce things usually and then the construction and forestry segment that consists of products like dozers, excavators, pavers, etc. So they kind of have these two major sides. Now, one thing I found interesting about their ability to manufacture these products is that they rely on 23 factories in North America to produce all of their products and another 47 in other regions around the globe. And about half of the North American factories are devoted to creating agricultural and turf products. So that's to tell you what is really important to the company as far as investment in their facilities, as far as investment into the types of products that they're creating for their customers. The agricultural and turf really takes center stage. So like Caterpillar, the finance arm of the company purchases notes and leases in order to help customers borrow for their equipment, which as you can imagine is usually pretty costly. And one thing about this I noticed is that the typical down payment from customers for the for Deer's products is usually between 10 and 30% of the total price. So you can imagine it's kind of like buying a home in a way. Like when you purchase a home, you usually, usually can't put less than 10% or 5% down unless you uh, have a, a very special type of financing deal. So it's kind of like that. You know, customers are coming to deer and company and and buying really complicated state-of-the-art large farming equipment in many cases and they put down a small percentage in order to purchase that but the rest of that principle gets held by the finance arm of the company so they're collecting interest off of those notes so that's another way that the company makes money let's look now at the financials So for the sake of comparison, I looked at the most recent full year of data, 2019, and I compare a lot of those data points with seven years prior, so 2012. And I don't know if I ever actually explained why I usually like to look at a seven-year window when looking at companies' data. And it comes back to some of Benjamin Graham's writings, which he wrote in The Intelligent Investor. And I don't remember exactly where he said it, but somewhere in his writings, he said, you know, in seven years, a business will probably have gone through some kind of a recession or gone through a full business cycle. And if you start looking at timeframes longer than that, the business itself is usually just a completely different business and has changed so much that 
you're almost not comparing apples to apples at that point. So seven years, I like it. It's a little bit longer than just the standard five that in many reports, you know, five years of data is what's summarized. But I like seven because it just gives you that little bit more of a long-term view. So just FYI, that's kind of why I like to look at those data points. Um, but let's look at what happened here. There certainly was not a recession in America between 2012 and 2019. So that didn't really help us there. But sales and income did fluctuate a lot over that time frame. if you were to look at the year-by-year data. But let's look at this snapshot because it kind of paints a, a little bit of a different picture. So the sales in 2012 were about $33 billion. Now, fast forward to today in 2019's fiscal numbers, it was just about $35 billion in sales. So over a seven-year period, sales basically didn't grow that much. I mean, maybe one or $2 billion, but for a company this size, percentage-wise, that's almost nothing. Now, as far as the net income this business produces, yeah, it kind of mirrors the sales. $3 billion in 2012, and just over $3 billion in profit in 2019. Now, like I said, if you were to look at the years of 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, those numbers look very different between like year to year. And so there's large fluctuations in both sales and profit. Um, So it's a cyclical business for sure, but over the long term, it hasn't really grown much at all. Now let's look at earnings per share. Now earnings per share is different than net income because what you or I as the investor is actually getting as profit. So in 2012, the company had just about $7.63 for earnings. And then in 2019, that grew to over $10 a share in earnings. So about a 4% annual growth rate in earnings per share. Now, how has it done this? If the profit has been basically the same, but the earnings per share has been rising, well, that just means that they're reducing their share count over time. So as we'll see shortly, their shares outstanding has decreased a decent amount over time. Now, going on to the balance sheet, I looked at the cash levels. The cash levels, they've been basically the same. They had about $4 billion in cash in 2012, about $3 billion in cash in 2019. So they have less cash. Their long-term debt is basically the same, $5.5 billion. Operating cash flow, basically the same, $3 billion. Um, and then they have some investing cash flow, the ebbs and flows, and their financing cash flow also ebbs and flows a lot. So things things change a lot with the financials of this company um, year to year, but over long periods of time, eh, just not really a whole lot changes. Now, one thing that did change for the better for shareholders is the dividends. Dividends did grow over time. So the company spent about $700 million in dividends in 2012, and they spent around $900 million in 2019. So decent dividend growth. The dividend per share rate has grown at about 7.5% annually over the past several years. So the company has been dedicated to returning cash to shareholders, which is a good sign. And then as far as their share buybacks, they've been buying back stock. So they've been buying about a billion, billion and a half dollars worth of stock um, from year to year. And that does change significantly with the, the fortunes of the company in a particular year. But over the long term, they have reduced the share count by about 3% annually over this time frame. So as an investor, you're kind of getting... Uh, a, a very low growth cyclical business, but you're also getting um, something that is 
producing real cash year to year or over the long term, and they're paying it out as dividends and they're buying back stocks. So you're, you're getting a real return there. Um, but at the end of the day, here, here's some closing thoughts. So when times are good, this is a company that buys back a lot of stock and they also borrow a lot of money. But when cash flow is tight, the borrowing does slow significantly and the share repurchases dry up. So it's kind of like when times are good, management is like, okay, we're going we're gonna to give it all back to the shareholders. But when times are rough, they're like, all right, we need to batten down the hatches and just like not borrow a lot of money right now. So you, you kind of have this inconsistency and it depends on how the company does uh, in, in any particular year. Now, one thing I noticed is that the earnings per share growth, it has virtually come entirely from share repurchases, which I don't know. I don't think that's a good look. I, I like to see businesses that are growing their sales, that are growing their profits, and maybe not necessarily at a high rate, but at least something. I mean, over a seven-year period, the financials have not really improved all that much. So I was a little disappointed with that. Now, the sales and profits have fluctuated a decent amount over the past several years, but the payoff in good times, to me, just doesn't really seem to make up for the bad times. So unfortunately, that's why I would kind of not really look at Deer & Co. as a, as the best long-term investment, but I do see them having a place in a portfolio potentially for someone who wants a decent dividend income. I mean, their dividend yield isn't... isn't uh, super crazy, like an oil major, but they do pay dividends and they have grown it over time. Um, so that's something that I would look at. Uh, but yeah, Deer & Co., it's a company that's been around for ages. I mean, not many businesses can survive for that long. And so I think they definitely have a lot more staying power than many cyclical businesses out there. I just don't think you're going to see a lot of growth with this firm. Um, but management does tend to give money back to shareholders. And that's a good thing. So that's what I think about Deer & Co. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Stock Stories podcast. And that's what I got for you this week. Now, my name is Alex. I'm your stock storyteller. If you want to reach out to me, uh, hit me up on Instagram. Send me a direct message at Stock Storyteller. So that's at Stock Storyteller. Or you can email me at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. So again, thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Have a good one. Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.